Welcome to the last session of our Gospel of Mark series. We're talking about the life of Jesus, and what I asked you to do in this series was to step back, in, if you can, forget everything you know about Jesus, and let Mark teach us. And so we're going to do the final two chapters of Mark in this series. Let me pray for us, and then we'll get going. Lord, thank you for this evening. Thank you for this study. Grateful for everyone who is willing to listen to your word. And I pray that you would open our hearts, open our minds, and motivate our hands to do your work in this world. In Christ's name. Well, let me give you a summary so far of the Gospel of Mark. There are 16 chapters. The first eight chapters, if you remember, really focus on the miracles of Jesus, the healings of Jesus, Jesus having power over the natural world. And by the way, remember when we were talking about that, how people were, their reaction to seeing Jesus do these unbelievable, literally, literally supernatural things was fear. I mean, not fear as in, oh no, he's going to do something bad to me. Well, of course not. He's healing somebody. But fear in the sense that I'm in the presence of power beyond what I can understand. And so the first eight chapters really show us the power of Jesus, that he is indeed the son of the living God. Well, the second half of the Gospel of Mark shows Jesus basically putting that power aside, if you will. In other words, he comes into conflict with the religious rulers of the time. He basically doesn't say, you know what, I have an army of angels here, and I think I'll just smite you guys. And by the way, poof, you're gone. And I mean, it, that's not the way this plays out. The way it plays out is Jesus humbles himself to follow God's plan, and he puts his power, if you will, aside. And so Mark 9 through 16 shows Jesus going to the cross, which is an unbelievable thing for the Son of God to do. Let's jump into the text. You'll see what I mean. Mark 14. I'm going to pick up near the end of the chapter. Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he says, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. This is an Old Testament prophecy, and he said, it's going to come true for you, my disciples, that when I am struck down, which they still did not understand that, they thought, oh no, we've seen your power. No one's going to strike you down. You're going to be king. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? But Jesus said, no. You're all going to fall away. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Well, they didn't understand that. I mean, again, they've seen all these things Jesus did. They thought, there's no one in this world who could kill you. There's no one in this world more powerful than you are. And so Peter says, of course it's Peter. He's the most rambunctious of the group. He says, even if the rest of these bozos fall away, okay, that's, a that's kind of a loose translation. He said, even if everybody else falls away, I will not. And Jesus says, um, this is an opinion, but I think he chuckles a little when he says this. 
He says, I'll tell you the truth, Peter. Today, even tonight, before the rooster crows twice in the morning, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same thing. Well, let's go on. I want to talk about two or three things here, but let me finish this passage. Verses 32 to 50. So they went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, now Gethsemane is in an olive grove on the Mount of Olives. So they have left Jerusalem, went down in the Kidron Valley, up onto the Mount of Olives, not far away at all, pretty steep though, up to the Mount of Olives into a place in a garden called Gethsemane amongst some olive trees. He said, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, this hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Well, when he returned to the disciples, he found them sleeping. He said to Peter, you are asleep. Could you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Once more, he went away, prayed the same thing, came back, found them asleep because their eyes were so heavy. They did not know what to say to him. And returning the third time, he said, are you still sleeping enough? The hour has come. Look, the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up and let's go. Here comes my betrayer. Well, just as he was speaking, Judas, one of his disciples, appeared. And with him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer, Judas, had arranged a signal with them. The one that I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away. Now that sounds odd to us, by the way. But a kiss on the cheek, I mean, think about uh, even Mediterranean customs today. You know, you'll get a kiss on the cheek. So it was basically saying the one I go up to and greet with a kiss on the cheek, that's the Messiah. And so, going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword, Peter, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you. I was teaching in the temple, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled then everyone deserted and fled. Well, a couple of observations there. First of all, we see Jesus just a short time before saying, all of you will leave me. And they said, oh, heavens no. There's no circumstance whatsoever that we would leave you. But Jesus disappointed them. And I don't want to hit that too hard, but I want you to understand that Jesus turned out to be something different than what they had imagined. They had imagined Jesus as the conquering king, 
the one who could literally tell the wind and the waves to stop, and they did. The one who could literally heal people who'd been crippled from birth, and they were. They saw Jesus as that conquering king, and no one could possibly overcome him. And yet, here you have a crowd sent from the chief priests who come out with their swords and their clubs in the middle of the night, and Jesus goes with them. And they were so disillusioned, they had no way to understand what was happening. This is not the Jesus they had imagined. Now, what's wrong here? Did Jesus do something wrong? Of course not. You and I know the rest of the story. Jesus is doing exactly what God has planned for him to do. In fact, in a few moments, we'll look at a passage from Philippians chapter 2, and you will see that this whole thing has been planned to see the power of Jesus and laying that power aside. In fact, Jesus had said earlier in his ministry, he said, I lay down my life willingly. He said, no one takes it from me. He said, I lay it down willingly. Well, they didn't understand what purpose would that serve. They didn't understand that through the cross and the resurrection, which they definitely didn't understand, that's how God would save all of us. And so they were disillusioned. Jesus wasn't who they thought he would be. And you know, there's a great life lesson here for you and for me. What happens when Jesus isn't exactly who you and I think he should be? I mean, it's popular in our culture, Western culture, Western Christianity, if you will, to have kind of what I call the therapeutic Jesus. We make a Jesus of our own devising. In fact, we make a lot of different Jesuses of our own devising. We have Jesuses and we would say, well, I can't believe in a God who would do this, so my Jesus wouldn't do that. We have people who imagine a Jesus who, well, I can't imagine a God who would let anyone be condemned to hell. I can't imagine a God who would do this, so my Jesus wouldn't do those things. Maybe even more common is my Jesus is here to fix my life. Therapeutic Jesus. And basically what that is, is if you follow Christ, your life will be better. Now, let me just leave aside for a moment that there's absolutely nothing in the teaching of Jesus there's absolutely nothing in the New Testament that says that. But that's the kind of Jesus that I want, right? I want a Jesus that'll make my shirt collars whiter, my teeth straighter, my children to get better ACT scores. I want a Jesus who will fix everything in my life. He's the ultimate psychotherapist, if you will. Well, that's a Jesus that's very appealing to us. But here's the problem. Just like these disciples, what happens when Jesus disappoints us? I say that with hopefully little air quotes around it because Jesus is not disappointing. Jesus is doing exactly what he has said he would do. But to me, to us, it's like, well, you failed me. The disciples said, you failed us. You were supposed to be the conquering king, the Messiah. How could you be led away? How could you be crucified? How could this happen? And yet, 
we have the same challenge. Sometimes we say, Jesus, how can you let me go through this? Jesus, how could this happen to my child? Jesus, how can you let these things go on? I thought you loved me. In other words, I thought you were going to make my life work out well. We face the same temptation that they did. And I hope that when we go through this, we'll make the same turn that the disciples make. It's okay to not understand. It's okay to not have a really clear image of Jesus. What's not okay is to say, there's something wrong with you. What we need to do and what they did was they struggled with their doubts, they wrestled, they confronted it, and when the living Christ appeared, they said, ah, we were wrong. You were right. We're still with you, Jesus. So let's follow along with that. Second thing, though, by the way, this is interesting because a lot of scholars think this is conjecture, but it's reasonable. Why did Jesus, why was he betrayed by Judas? I mean, Judas is one of the disciples. Why does he betray Jesus? Well, one plausible or at least believable explanation is this. Judas, like everybody else, is looking for a Messiah who would come and start a rebellion and throw off the Romans and, by the way, kick out the priests that were so corrupt and restore Israel to the true worship of God and restore Israel to its own to be its own kingdom, not ruled by pagans or Gentiles. So when he had that expectation of Jesus, and then as time goes on, he begins to realize, wait a minute, Jesus doesn't seem to share that vision. I think he's the Messiah, but he doesn't seem to be the Messiah in the way I want him to be, or the way I understand him to be. We're back again to Jesus is disappointing to me. So some scholars think Judas went to the priests and he said, you know what, you're looking for a way to arrest Jesus. I will deliver him to you. And here's what they think Judas was thinking. He thinks, I'll deliver him to you. You'll put him on trial. All of the people who are so, I mean, Jesus was very popular. I mean, he's healing people. He's teaching God loves you. The kingdom of God is coming. Jesus is very popular. And so he says, you arrest him, and I think that will spark a revolution. And then even though Jesus doesn't want to seem to be king, we'll make him be king. And so a lot of scholars think that Judas was trying to start a rebellion. Well, of course, Jesus had no interest. It was not in God's plan to start a rebellion. God had far bigger plans than overthrowing a government. He had cosmic, eternal plans, not just plans to overthrow the Roman Empire. And yet, that seems to be what Judas was interested in doing. So it's really interesting to me that Judas wanted to start a rebellion. Jesus didn't. And yet, look at the last verse here. He said, am I leading a rebellion that you have come out to get me with swords and clubs. He said, you don't need the swords, you don't need the clubs, I'll go with you. You don't even need the handcuffs, let's go. 
It's kind of that typical Jesus turning things upside down. All the people, all the disciples wanted a rebellion, and Jesus didn't give it to them. And yet he gets arrested as though he's someone leading a rebellion. Well, let's go on. They take him before Pontius Pilate. Very early in the morning, the chief priests, the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. Now, this is really early in the morning. This is 4 or 5 a.m. I mean, there's nothing legal about this, and yet they get the rulers together and they say, this is our opportunity. And so they reached a decision. They bound him, led him away, handed him over to Pontius Pilate. Well, why do they hand him over to Pontius Pilate? Well, they have the authority to beat him, to whip him, to put him in jail, uh, according to their religious law. But they don't have the authority to kill him. Pilate does. Well, Pontius Pilate has the authority to kill him, but Pontius Pilate only imposes the capital punishment. In fact, all the Roman governors only you know, impose capital punishment for someone who was rebelling against Caesar. So let's see how it plays out. They said, Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, basically, yes, I am. And the chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pontius Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer this? I mean, do you like have witnesses to call here? See how many things they're accusing you of? But Jesus made no reply. And Pontius Pilate was amazed at that. Now, it was the custom at the feast. This is the... Uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is Passover. It was a custom at the feast to release a prisoner that the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. He was a rebel. He was trying to start a rebellion, and they murdered some Roman citizens. So he's in jail. And so Pontius Pilate says, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? knowing that it was out of envy that the chief priests handed Jesus over. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. Now, I want to pause here for a second because I know you've heard a lot of sermons that said the people that on the Sunday before, Palm Sunday, were saying Hosanna to Jesus now are saying crucify him, crucify him. That's not quite accurate. Jesus was and is very popular, but I want you to think about when this is. <clears throat> so the Sanhedrin meet very early in the morning. Jesus is going to be beaten. He's going to be brought back to Pilate. Pilate's going to say, okay, crucify him, and he's going to be crucified. He's going to walk through Jerusalem, and he's going to be nailed to a cross at 9 a.m. So when do you think this is happening? I don't know for sure, but what do you say, 6 a.m.? I mean, it's obviously happening very early. How many people do you think are up at this time? Not very many. Who do you think is in this crowd standing before Pilate? Whoever the chief priests could get together to come together and say, we need to get rid of this guy. So the crowd that's yelling crucify him at 6 a.m. in the morning is not the crowd of people who were saying Hosanna that Sunday before. Judas, slick little plan to get the people to rise up, failed. Why? Because the chief priests were a little bit smarter than he was. 
they realized if they let this trial drag on for a couple of days, if they go to noon or one o'clock and all the people are coming into town and they go, wait a minute, what, what are you guys doing to Jesus here? They might very well have a rebellion. But by the time everybody got up and started coming into Jerusalem, there's Jesus on a cross. And Judas, in remorse, goes, oh no, my plan has failed. Goes off, kills himself, etc. But the point is, the chief priests saw their opportunity, they moved quickly. Now Pontius Pilate doesn't want to kill him. He says, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Knowing it was out of envy that the chief priests were handing him over. And so they said, no. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas, a murderer, instead. What shall I do then with the one you call king of the Jews, Pilate said. Crucify him, they shouted. Crucify him. Why, said Pilate, what crime has he committed? Meaning, if he's broken your religious laws, well, go beat him, go put him in jail. But what Roman crime has he committed? And they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. So you see the political things that are happening here. And I want you to understand that in that time, the crucifixion of Jesus was a very political event. You have Pontius Pilate, who could have said, I'm not crucifying this guy, this is crazy. Then the chief priests and the influential Jews write letters back to Rome, to politicians, to whose campaigns they had contributed, and say, Pontius Pilate has let some guy be the king of the Jews. We only have one king, Caesar. I don't know how loyal this guy is. Well, that would get him in a lot of trouble, wouldn't it? Or he can murder an innocent man for political expediency. And that's what Pilate does. He understands the dilemma. He pushes back and says, this guy's committed no crime. And if you remember in another gospel, he has a, some water brought to him and he says, I wash my hands of this. It's on your head that this man is dying. And yet, for political expediency, he sends him to the cross. Mark understands, and he's trying to help us understand, that God is working in the midst of politics. I mean, think about this. You and I know that Jesus was born to go to the cross. I mean, ultimately, that is God's plan of redemption, that our sin, our debt, must be paid and our lives are forfeit. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, comes, takes on the form of a man, and goes to the cross, the one who knew no sin, became sin for our sakes. So Jesus died, or came to die on the cross. But listen to what Mark's telling you. It's Jesus, it's God working out his plan in the real world. You know, that's one of my hot buttons. It's one of the things we talk about a lot is in those days, Jesus was playing out the plan of God in the midst of economics and politics and hatreds and friendship. And he was doing real life and God was working through real people. That's important because the same is true today. 
your and my faith as we go about our Monday through Friday workaday worlds is God working out his plan in the midst of economics and politics and cars with flat tires and children who don't turn in their homework. I mean, all of these things are God working through the real life. That's exactly what happens here. And Mark wants you to understand that Jesus goes to the cross for very political reasons. Mark is then going to explain that the result of that political, physical act has huge theological consequences. There's a quote that I really like. I'm going to flip up the slide here. This, by the way, this picture is from uh, The Passion. And this is Jesus having been beaten, chained, Pontius Pilate saying, Behold the man. This is a powerful passage from the Gospel of John. Uh, Behold the man. You know, I've beaten him. Enough's enough. This guy doesn't deserve death. And yet they say, crucify him. Bruce Shelley, in his book Church History, makes this observation. First sentence in the book. Christianity is the only major religion to have as its central event the humiliation of its God. I want you to think about that for a minute, and that is true. Christianity is the only major religion to have as its central event the humiliation of its God. Jesus is the Son of God, and he goes to the cross, and Pontius Pilate has him flogged, and the uh, soldiers put a crown of thorns on his head, and they beat him, and they mock him. Now think about it. If you had just read chapters 1 through 8 of Mark, you would say, that can't possibly happen. He has power to literally walk away. I mean, this can't happen to him unless he allows it. And that is the essence, that is the uniqueness of Christianity. It's power laid down for you and for me. And I hope that that kind of grabs you for a little bit. Let me pause for a second. That's God laying down his power and becoming vulnerable for you and for me. That's the story. That's the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. It is indeed the only major religion to have as its central event the humiliation of its God. We go on. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, the praetorian, which the palace was literally... Uh, if you have the Temple Mount, we've seen pictures of this before, but I did not bring one today. And right beside it is the Antonia Fortress. And so it would have served as the palace for the governor Pilate when he was in Jerusalem. He had a much nicer palace in Caesarea on the sea. But it was also the guards, the barracks for all the soldiers. So they took him in there, put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns, and they set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail! king of the Jews. And again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and they spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. Now there was a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus. By the way, that's an interesting little deal. I'm going to just take a moment. The fact that Mark includes that indicates that they're probably still alive and they're probably Christian and they're probably known 
to Christians at that time. I mean, you don't make this up if you don't want this to be corroborated. But Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh, kind of a sedative, if you will, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was the third hour when they crucified him, 9 a.m. The written notice of the charge against him read this, the king of the Jews. They crucified two thieves beside him, one on his right, one on his left, and those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, huh, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come on down from that cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he doesn't seem to be able to save himself. Let this Christ, this Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him heaped insults on him. This is the crux of the Gospel of Mark. You go all the way from the power and the glory and the power over nature, over healing of Christ, to being hung up on a cross and having these people that orchestrated his political fix taunting him. It's the ultimate turning things upside down. And yet, it's exactly what God planned. This is Philippians chapter 2. This is the Holy Spirit talking to the Apostle Paul a short time later. And he says this, your attitude, your and my attitude, this is powerful, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, in other words, he was indeed God in the flesh, did not consider equality with God something to hold on to. In other words, he didn't insist on his prerogatives, if you will. He didn't insist on destroying everybody who came against him. He didn't consider equality with God something to hold on to, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Can you feel the power of this? This is the God of the universe. Become human, and for your sake and for my sake, lays aside his power and humbles himself to be taunted, to be beaten, to be hung on a cross where everyone can say, you were a liar. You aren't who you say you were. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father." And so you see, the good news of Christ is the God of all power becomes human, humbles himself to die for you and for me, but that's not the end of the story. Sometimes we think the cross is the center of history. That's not exactly true. Oh, 
on the cross? Did Jesus bear your sin, my sin, the sins of all who had placed their trust in him? Absolutely true. But if he died, it's done. It's over. And that's exactly what the disciples thought. They thought, well, it was a good thing, and he obviously was powerful. We thought he was the son of God, but he's dead. And a dead man can't help us. But that's not the end of the story. When the Sabbath was over, that's Saturday, so they buried him on Friday evening. Saturday is a Sabbath. So early on Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint his body. Very early on the first day of the week, so that's Sunday. Sunday is the first day of the week. Saturday is the seventh day of the week. Saturday is the Sabbath. Sunday, the first day of the week, they went very early, right after sunrise. They were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, oh no, who's going to roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? These stones, even the circular ones, which were the ones used here, are still, they would roll them a little bit downhill. So no animals could get into it. It was really hard to rob the grave, even though Jews didn't put jewelry or anything on their bodies. But, uh, I mean, to roll that stone away was a big deal. And so they said, oh, no, you know, how are we going to get the stone away? But as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. And the stone had already been rolled away. They were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But you go tell his disciples and Peter. Why Peter? Conjecture, but I think if you remember, Peter had denied Jesus three times, just like Jesus said he would. And he says, you go tell the disciples, oh, and be sure to tell Peter, because if Peter is willing... He can come back, and he is, and he does. And the same is true for you and me. He said, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Just as he told you, trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Here, by the way, are pictures, just showing you a couple pictures of tombs that have circular stones. You still see these in Israel. They aren't used in Israel today, but there are still tombs from that era, and you can still see tombs that were sealed, not by just putting a bunch of rocks there, although they did that too. Sometimes they would just stack up rocks, but if they could, and if it were a nicer tomb, you would have this circular stone you could roll in. And then if you had enough guys, you could roll it away and get back in. So this was a rich man's tomb, which we know to be true, don't we? But that's what the tomb looked like. And when they went into the tomb, Jesus is not there. One other thing, before we leave this passage and kind of finish this up, I know we need to, to move on here and finish this lesson, but one other thing I want to point out to you. Who goes to the empty tomb? The women go to the empty tomb. Now, you've heard a lot of sermons that said, wow, that's really impressive because, and everything you've heard is true, these women come back and say, oh my goodness, we went in, we saw an angel, Jesus isn't there. The angel said to tell you, he's actually raised from the dead. He's not a dead man. He's not dead. He's alive. And told me to tell you, you'll see him in Galilee. Well, 
as you've probably heard in sermons, that's really unlikely because women, they couldn't even testify in court. That's true. In Jewish law, they could not testify in court. And yet, God uses these women to be the first ones to tell this good news. I mean, it's literal. They don't understand it at the time. They're still puzzled. But this is good news. It's good news that Christ bore our sins on the cross and overcame the grave. The key news is, and God raised him from the dead. And that means he can raise you and me from the dead. And everything Jesus said about, I go to prepare a place for you, and you will be with me forever, the whole concept that we have of heaven all depends on Jesus being raised from the dead. And these women are the ones who carry the message. Well, that's powerful in a Jewish culture that God would use, as he says many times, the weak things. I'm not saying these women were weak. I'm simply saying they couldn't even testify in court. He's going to use the things the culture marginalizes to declare his glory. But what I want to say to you is this, this simple truth. If it weren't for women, there would be no Christianity, guys. Women are typically more faithful servants, and that should call us out. Where were the guys? Why weren't they there? Where was their faith in this situation? I'm not just trying to beat up on the guys. I just want you to realize that the gospel is for all of us, and God uses every one of us in his plan. The resurrection of Christ is the center of the gospel. Listen to this passage from 1 Corinthians 15. This is Paul writing about, oh, probably 30 years later, maybe a little bit more, to the church, believers in Jesus Christ, that he was crucified with our sins, he was raised from the dead, and he lives to the glory of God. And they believed that, and they began to live consistent with that trust and that belief. And so Paul's writing this letter, and he says, listen, some people are telling you that Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. And he's saying, well, if that's the case, he might as well be, this is anachronistic, he might as well be Gandhi. He might as well be the Buddha. He might as well be your favorite self-help teacher. If he hasn't been raised from the dead, then it doesn't matter how smart he was, how wise he was, how great his teaching seems to be. Listen to what Paul says. But it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead. How can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? If there's no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be liars about God because we testified that God raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have already died in Christ are lost. If it's only in this life that we have hope in Jesus Christ, then we should be pitied more than all men. Now, it's very popular in our time to want to take Jesus and customize him, whether it's therapeutic Jesus or it's Jesus that has no judgment or you know, whatever kind of Jesus we would like to have. But it's very popular to take a Jesus and say, I don't know about all that miraculous stuff. I don't know about this virgin birth. I don't know about this raising from the dead. 
I don't really know about the demons being cast out. I'm not so sure about actually healing all these people. But I love what Jesus teaches. Let's just all love each other and get along. You know what that is? I call that Coca-Cola Jesus. Why do I call it Coca-Cola Jesus? Because Coke used to have this commercial, I'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony, and we'll all just grab hands and stand around, and for some reason drinking a Coke seems to help this. So we would drink a Coke and we would all love each other, and the world would be a great place. Well, I've had a lot of Cokes, but I gotta tell you, the world doesn't look like that, does it? But there's something in us that says, if we could just be nice to each other, if we could just follow Jesus' teachings and, you know, just kind of love each other, forgive each other. The problem with that is, Paul says, that Jesus can't save you. Pick up a newspaper and you'll realize that Jesus is not changing this world. If Christ is not raised from the dead, if we do not have hope and assurance of life beyond this time, there is no justice. There can be no righteousness in this world. No matter how much we want to make Jesus into the be nice to each other God, it doesn't work. Paul says, if it's only in this life that we have hope in Christ, if it's only by drinking a Coke and being nice to each other, we actually should be pitied because it won't work. And so the Gospel of Mark is beautiful in the sense that you get the power of Christ, you get the humility of Christ, and at the very end, you get the crowning glory, is that Jesus Christ overcame death. That's something that no other religion, nothing else, even claims to be able to do. That's the good news of Jesus Christ.